Welcome to Precept to Practice, another CE Impact podcast. CE Impact is a leader in pharmacy education and lifelong learning. Visit www.ceimpact.com for more information. PDP podcast is dedicated to helping preceptors grow and learn while balancing the demands of a busy schedule. This podcast is for the professional preceptor who wants to thrive and is looking for tips and tricks to succeed while headed to work. Today, we have Tracy Pettiger from Idaho State University with Lindsay Davis at Midwestern University on the podcast sharing pearls on the Socratic questioning style. Let's hear what they have to say. Tracy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. My name is Tracy Pettinger, and I am a clinical associate professor at Idaho State University. And I am joined today by Lindsay Davis, a newly minted professor at Midwestern College of Pharmacy in Glendale, Arizona. Hi, everybody. So we're going to talk today about the Socratic method and how we can use that Socratic method in our precepting. So Lindsay is a Socratic method guru and has graciously um, agreed to talk with us today. So first and foremost, Lindsay, what exactly is the Socratic method? Thanks, or what is it not, actually? I mean, I think people get confused on this. What is it? What is it not type of thing? So if you could clear that up, that'd be great. Fantastic. Thanks for the question. And uh, thanks for the high accolades that I'm a Socratic questioning guru. I really like to think of myself as more of a steward of the method and a work in progress. But I'm super excited about this method because it has revolutionized the way that I interact with learners, whether it be students or residents. So what is it? Um, The Socratic method is a teaching technique employed to enhance, develop, refine and explore critical thinking skills. And at the end of the day, if you ask me what's the one thing I want to do with any learner that I work with, it's that I want them to think better. And if they're a better thinker, they can solve any problem because knowledge is a moving target. Great. I've taken some of your courses before and I've tried to do it uh, with my students and I actually find that it is uh, very helpful. So um, can you go into more? I don't want to explain why I find it helpful, but can you dive into why it's something that we should put in our toolbox as preceptors? Yeah. So the Socratic method is a way of having a dialogue where you utilize rigorous questioning, not torturous questioning, but rigorous questioning. There is a difference. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. To get at the heart of the matter. So it's not just about having a right answer. It's having a right answer and having being well-reasoned in that right answer, knowing when you might change your mind, depending if the circumstance or context changes, taking into into account other people's perspectives, or maybe biases that might be in place on the behalf of yourself or the others that are involved with the decision or the recommendation or the context of what you're talking about. So it's asking a lot of why questions or what if questions, or I hear you to say X, but I also earlier said, heard you say why, can those two things both be true? And helping the learner apply and think through information and making sure they're not just reciting information, but instead that they've internalized information. One of the best Socratic questions I utilize in my toolbox is, set, is to say, you have the right answer. Tell me why you think that's the right answer and then explain it to me in more than one way. I like that. 
to me, it kind of seems like it's instead of a yes, no type of question, right, wrong type of question, it is let's take a few steps back and really kind of explore everything behind that question. So again, it, it gets more into that critical thinking component and what they do know as opposed to, did you memorize this from when I lectured on it or something along those lines? And interestingly, I think sometimes my learners, when they first start working with me kind of on this more one-on-one or experiential realm, they get surprised when I enter a conversation starting with the right answer. I'll tell them something, for instance, like ACE and ARBs can cause hyperkalemia. That's the right answer. The question I have for you is, how do they cause hyperkalemia? Because if you understand the how, then you can understand how we might approach therapy and what we can do to mitigate that. And in what patients might it not just be a no-go any any further versus um, other side effects from um, the RAS uh, inhibitor class. For instance, if someone has a cough on an ACE inhibitor, you could try an ARB. If someone had angioedema on an ACE inhibitor, it may be an appropriate situation to try an ARB. But if someone has hyperkalemia, significant hyperkalemia, let's talk like a potassium greater than six on an ACE inhibitor, it's a no-go on an ARB. And so understanding how we get there really helps them to know it. I tell them, I don't want you just to know figuratively how to ride a bike. I want you to know a bike, not just today, but if in three years, if you haven't ridden a bike, you could still get on one and move down the street. So it's not just about having right answers or memorizing things or using the easy out of, I'll just go look it up. Then they go look it up and come back with a right answer. Really don't know it for themselves. They just know it because they were good at finding resources and finding information quickly, which is really different than knowing something well. Or good at memorizing and keeping those little facts in your brain and not Mm -hmm. knowing why. I know um, something that I fall into myself and I see some learners um, have the same habit is that when they're trying to recall information, their eyes kind of look up and to the right. Like they're almost like looking back into their brain, like I can see it. If I could just find the slide or find the picture, find the words, I would know it as opposed to having it be more comfortable. Like I don't have to search in my brain to tell you what my first name is and my date of birth is. I know those things. And I very confident that if you asked me that, even if I was tired, even if I was stressed, even if I hadn't thought about it in a while, I could come to it. Nice. I mean, that brings up another part too, you know, not everything does someone need to know at amazing depth, right? So it's not like you need to use the Socratic method um, to discuss everything, but if you can help learners on, on key content that you might be working with them on, say, for instance, I work in a cardiology clinic. And so we use a lot of RAS inhibition. So hyperkalemia, angioedema, cough with ACE and ARBs is very relevant to my day-to-day. I want my learners to know that when they're working with me, but not everything that we work with, do they need to know at that depth? So you do have to kind of pick and choose, but you can use it as a method that, wow, when they feel that they really learn something at depth, you know, they'll tell you things like, I start hearing your voice in my head, Lindsay, when I'm thinking through questions, what's the next question she's going to ask? And that tells me that I'm helping to move forward their thought process so that they're on their own thinking more deeply. Well, that was going to be kind of a little follow-up question to that is, do you see over time when you're using this method with your students that their thought processes just automatically start to become more along those lines, even when you're not intending them to be? Does that make sense? I think the question, it does. I think the question that you're asking is, is how do you first start to see the signs where it's becoming a habit for them to act beyond the, the right answer, but the why? 
Um, and I think every person's on a different trajectory um, and it, they're in a different trajectory with different information, right? Like I might come across a learner who's incredibly skilled with um, patient communication and they're very at ease and they can build rapport and credibility, but digging into the rationalized reason of why I might choose a drug therapy isn't something they're strong at. So it depends on kind of what we're talking about, what we have to dig into a little bit deeper. And so um, what I love about the Socratic method is it can meet any learner where they're at. I mean, the Socratic method comes from Socrates. He lived 2,500 years ago. I'm pretty sure Lysenopril wasn't on the market then. So, you know, it's not just relevant to um, our current times. You can use it for anything. I mean, I've, I've heard of kindergarten teachers who, who introduced the Socratic method to talk to their, their pupils about um, being a good friend or what do they think about this poem. It's really just a structured method that helps um, frame rigorous discussions that are meaningful. So if you don't mind, let's do an example. I'm volunteering myself for you to go through this method uh, with me. So somewhat be kind, but I do want to show uh, our listeners really how this how this plays out. Yeah, when we um, chatted a couple of days ago, um, just getting our mind around doing this podcast, you had suggested this and I thought I've been thinking about it. So I have an idea of a topic. Here goes. Okay. Digoxin is an old drug and it's come in and out of favor over the years for conditions such as management of rate control and atrial fibrillation or in helping heart failure to improve cardiac output. I want to get at the notion, I'm going to start with the right answer. Um, Digoxin has a dual mechanism of action. Um, and ultimately that mechanism of action is positive inotropy, increased force of contraction, and negative chronotropy reduced heart rate. My question to you, what are the underlying mechanisms that get at those outcomes? Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, take a shot at it. Let's just see if I can dust off the cobwebs because I know it's in there and I know you know things about digoxin. You probably okay. know, you know, just get on the bike. You're wearing okay. a here we go. So it's a positive inotrope because I believe that it causes an increase in influx of calcium through a potassium pump, I think. I wish you felt more confident about that because you're right. Oh, yay. <laughs> Sodium, potassium, ATPase, which changes the um, electrolyte composition in the muscle, which allows for positive inotropy or increased force of contraction. Nice work. Thank you. Second mechanism action then sounds like we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. Let uh, yeah. me give you some ideas okay. to, to chew on. And then I'd love it if you can just kind of think aloud with me. Okay. Um, just put some stuff out there. And when you are getting into an area where I think that, you, you know, we can move forward, I'll give you some signals so that we can dig deeper. And then I can ask you some clarifying questions. Okay. So the drug is a negative um, chronotrope, which means it reduces heart rate. Can mm -hmm. you aim for me? Any other negative chronotropes, classes of drugs? A negative chronotrope would be a beta blocker. Yeah. Uh, Non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And a joxin, absolutely. So you got the three classes of drugs. And if you were to take those three classes of drugs and put them under a single umbrella that defines negative inotropy as a mechanism, do you know what they would be? Think about uh, the heart and electrical activity. Well, I'm thinking through my brain of SA node and AV node. Mm -hmm. and keep going. I'm trying to, and then keep going. And then down to the Purkinje fibers, down into the ventricle. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about ventricles for a second. So the SA node um, is an is has automaticity and it electrical impulse and that electrical impulse spreads across both atria and lands at the AV node. Tell me what the role of the AV node is in electrical propagation in the heart. So I, when I think of the AV node, I think of it almost like a gate. So mm-hmm. it will depolarize and repolarize as fast as it can. It's getting hit with different electric electrical signals, but it can only depolarize and repolarize at a certain rate, I guess, if you will. And then once it depolarizes, it'll go down through the Purkinje fibers and then reset itself. Absolutely. So you describe the AV node as a gatekeeper to dissemination of that message through the ventricles. So mm-hmm. what do you think the AV node's role is then in managing heart rate? Its role in managing heart rate? Well, it would be the rate to which it is being stimulated would be the rate to which the ventricles will respond. Yeah. So these classes of drugs are all called, are all these drugs, um, the non-dihydropurinine calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, and digoxin are AV nodal blockers. They slow down the ability or they make that gatekeeper more sluggish so that you're not pushing information through the ventricles. So all those drugs are AV nodal blockers and they get at it in different ways. So if you're not familiar with how digoxin works, let's see if you know how the other two drugs work and maybe that other two classes work and maybe that'll give you some hints as to how digoxin might work. So beta blockers, you're probably somewhat familiar with them. They're AV nodal blockers. And how do they achieve that? Through blockade of primarily the beta one, but it can be beta two receptors as well. Absolutely. And so when we say beta, what type of system are we talking about in the body? Uh, Norepinephrine or like um, sympathetic. Sympathetic nervous system. So now we're talking about something different than what we were talking about when we were talking about inotropy. When we were talking about um, inotropy, um, we were talking about electrical, um, the depolarization part for force of contraction. And we're talking about those electrical impulses. Well, now we're talking about innervation from not the automaticity of the heart, but from the brain. Would you agree? Agree. Okay, so then we're slowing down sympathetic outflow or input, okay? Um, Calcium channel blockers, how do they work? Um, They block one of the um, calcium channels that cause the um, depolarization. So then you're gonna Mm -hmm. get traction. So we also have calcium channels in our AV node. And so we're slowing down the um, calcium channels such that the gatekeeper again becomes more sluggish. We've talked about two mechanisms, but there has to be a third one. So we're talking, you said sympathetic nervous system, and it falls under the umbrella of what we call the autonomic nervous system. What's the other half to sympathetic? Parasympathetic. Absolutely. So I think that's where your answer might lie. Can you then kind of put this together? How might the parasympathetic, how could we, how could a drug impact the parasympathetic nervous system to get at the end point of um, negative chronotropy? So it would have to stimulate the parasympathetic system as opposed to block it like you have to do with the sympathetic nervous system. Absolutely. So digoxin is what we call a vagomimetic. The vagus nerve um, innervates the heart to provide parasympathetic outflow, and it enhances parasympathetic outflow. There you go. Nice job. That's actually, I'm going to just say, okay, very uncomfortable with that topic. I did not know what the question was going to be. And I had to start sweating a little bit when you brought up digoxin. But I have to say that as we were going through that, like the light bulb came on and just reminded me of um, despicable me 
light bulb because I could kind of, I, as we were going through it, I could just, aha, there we go. So that was actually very interesting um, from the learner standpoint because I haven't really done it <laughs> in that way. Scary because of everything, but, but pretty cool. I love it that you're talking, you know, we're sharing this emotion that, you know, you asked this for me to do this and from colleague to colleague can be a, t- a little bit intimidating, right? Like I want you to shine and I want to be able to showcase the method and to showcase the method really means that we need to find something where there's a knowledge gap. And we have to record it so that it's even more better. <laughs> well, we did record it and um, the audience should absolutely know I didn't tell you in advance that we were going to talk about digoxin. It's something that I do. So I'm really comfortable with it. And I would say that that's one of my advices, uh, my advices, one of my pieces of advice for someone who's going to start using the method is um, it is a powerful method. You have to recognize that your learner, um, even if it's a colleague, is going to feel intimidated by it because it feels as though your your knowledge is on display. And when you feel like your knowledge is on display, you feel like your credibility, your rapport is on display. And that takes a relationship that you have to build with your learner. So my suggestion is, is that um, you find as a someone who's using the Socratic method, you find topics that are important to you that you know fairly well when you're first exploring it so that you can know common Um, misconceptions about the topic, and you can pull them outside of that initial topic with analogies or other topics or context. Like I tried to pull you to AD nodal blockers and beta blockers and Dilton verapamil, which you're probably more comfortable with in the day-to-day, and then say, well, there's some balancing. How else would you do that? And then that makes you feel like, oh, I've got this, and I can like run with this. And then kind of that I mean, you can speak for your own emotions, but I imagine once you feel like you were getting a sense of success, you feel like, oh, this is a more fun game than I thought it would be. Well, I find, and that's true. And I, I find that my students, when I, when I do this or my learners, when I, when I do this, it's not like, oh, sorry, you're wrong. It's like, okay, let's take a step back and go to something that you do know. And then they get a little more confidence and they don't feel like a complete moron. It's like, okay, I do know some stuff. I just need to find the path to get to what she's really asking. Yeah. I had a fun experience with my, um, I taught in an elective yesterday. It's a cardiology elective with pharmacy students. And we had gone through, I teach through cases. So I give them cases and I have them work up the case. And then we kind of talk through it and lots of stuff gets uncovered in this method, right? Where you're using cases to teach. And the construct was, was that um, a patient with AFib was needing rate control. And they had a prior history of bradycardia on a beta blocker. And I don't give the history of what the beta blocker was or what the dose was. I just give them that history. And I say, well, now we're in a situation where we need rate control again. What should we do? And one of the students said, well, we should use Delta Verapamil. They can't can't tolerate beta blockers. And I said, huh, okay, well, that's an idea. Does anybody else have ideas? And there wasn't much else on the table. And I said, well, let me just give you an analogy really quick in terms of potency. Um, It's sort of like saying... Uh, lemonade is too sour and tart for you. So why don't you go ahead and suck on a lemon? Right? Because if you're worried about the bottoming them out on beta blockers, you're going to give them something much more potent. So it's that we just need to start low and go slow and maybe start again with a beta blocker. Um, And so I think that like pulling in an analogy like that and helping them think in that way um, can be really powerful. And, you know, afterwards they were, you know, put on the little faces because we're still in virtual learning, like the little like, ha, 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 or clap, clap, clap. (laughs) understand that now. So I think infusing the Socratic method with analogies, bridging information along, showing them success, but holding them accountable for what they should know. Exactly. 
You know, another thing I hear students say a lot uh, when um, students in particular, not residents as much, but students in particular will say when I ask a question about something like, we'll say, oh, that was like two or three quarters ago. Like those details are really fuzzy on me. And I'll say, oh, you know what? I totally get it. I was in pharmacy school 20 years ago and those (laughs) are just falling really fuzzy on me. Right. So even just kind of putting it back in their court and helping them kind of gain, um, this confidence that it's okay to not know everything because no one can know everything. Something else I want to say before uh, you ask me any other questions, if you have them, is that um, one of the barriers that I find with my learners and using the Socratic method is that they've been told um, that they should never guess in patient care. And so when I'll say, well, just give me your best answer, they're like, well, I'm not supposed to guess. I need to look it up. And I have to contextually correct them. And I'll say, Right. You never guess when you tell a patient what they're going to do, or you don't guess when you tell the provider your recommendation. But when we're here discussing something and you feel like you don't know, but you're wanting to put an idea out there, that's a very different circumstance. And I'm giving you permission to guess. And I'm giving you permission to utilize phraseology that helps me know that you're in a guessing situation, that you say something like, I'm not sure, but what's coming to my mind is this. It's appropriate to guess or to not be right um, in a Socratic dialogue. And I think that's the important part is when you were telling me, okay, think aloud. I want to hear your thought process going through that aloud. And I think that helps where they may think that they're guessing, but you're just going into their brains a little bit and seeing where, where they're going or maybe where they're tripping themselves up a little bit. Okay. Final question. So we've shown, we've talked about what it is, the Socratic method we've shown through examples and discussion um, why it's important. So how do our preceptors listening start to implement this into their experiences? I love it. Um, well, I think first you have to become more familiar with the concepts um, of the Socratic method. Um, I've created a really brief handout with some readings and some other ideas to share. Hopefully CE Impact has made that easy to find on the website. Um, one of the first things I would say is recognizing that the Socratic dialogue is sim- is different than simply asking questions and is very different from what we might call pimping, where you are asking questions to establish hierarchy or to help to make the, or force the person to feel humiliated or like, like they're not good enough. Um, so the intent of the questioner is really important. Another thing is, is to be aware of the types of Socratic questions that there are. So recognizing that there are various question types that you would use and you need to use them appropriately. The handout kind of goes over this, but there's questions that ask about information, interpretation, assumption, implication, et cetera. And kind of having a series of questions that you, question types that you can use in whatever context you're talking about. If that feels a little bit overwhelming on all these different question types, my suggestion to you is be asking why questions um, and questions beyond just simply right answers. Your goal should be beyond a right answer and into a why do you think that? What would change your mind about that? How might someone else who disagrees with you think? Those are really powerful questions to utilize regularly in a Socratic dialogue. Great. No, I think that is fantastic. And I really do appreciate you putting that handout together because it's always nice to refer back to, to something, even if you've been using this for a while, just to brush up and maybe try something different. So um, I will definitely be taking a look at that. Um, any other great words of wisdom you have for about the Socratic dialogue? I like that better than method. I like the dialogue portion. That's yeah. what it is. 
Yeah. So if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Your learners are learning and you are learning the method as well. So it can feel a little bit messy um, up front. The other thing is, is don't hide your teaching method, aka in this case, the Socratic method from the learner. So I always think of the Wizard of Oz here, right? So he's hidden behind a curtain, but then Dorothy goes and pulls back the curtain and sees that he's just a man. Say to your learners up front, um, I'm going to be using a teaching method and it's called the Socratic method. Have you heard of it or not? What do you think about it? A lot of um, the Socratic method is talked about a lot in like law school. So if someone knows someone who was in law school, they'll often kind of uh, talk about it in that regard and they, and they may have positive feelings about it or negative feelings about it. So ask them how they feel about it. Tell them why you're using that method because you care about their learning and you care about their growth and you don't want them to just fall short with right answers because they're moving targets. What's the right answer today will not be the right answer five years from now necessarily. And so if you've just finished right, finished right answers, it's like seeing having being familiar with having seen someone ride a bike but not being able to ride a bike yourself. Um, show them that it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. And there's going to be a lot of growth with them in that. And maybe if you have access to it, um, showcase, uh, show to them a um, image or a, a recording of a, a Socratic dialogue that doesn't involve them. So they can see it kind of from afar before they step in. Um, I happen to have recorded several of those types of vignettes. So um, if anyone is interested, they could contact me at my email address and I could share some vignettes that can be used on a personal level. Um, just human examples, not perfect, not amazing, but recorded off my iPhone. But I've used a lot to show my students in advance to kind of take the edge off so that they know, oh, OK, that's what it looks like. I know what I'm heading into. Um, that can be helpful. And they had a great example today. I mean, come on. They could just. <laughs> right. The Jackson's a drug that's coming in and coming out of favor. You there just you know where you're going to be. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. I really appreciate it. And I love talking with you today. And thanks for making that DeJoxin experience not as painful as I was expecting it to be. So um, really appreciate you. And I appreciate everyone listening to this podcast. We hope you have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Tracy and Lindsay, for another great episode. The role-playing used to highlight this process, you did great, Tracy, was another amazing example of Socratic questioning in practice. Additionally, I want to thank Lindsay for providing a nice pocket guide for our preceptors. Check out the show notes to get access to it. As our listeners continue to precept, mentor, and support students, don't forget to check out some of the other great educational content designed for preceptors also in our show notes. We have courses that are focused on uh, the clinical educator, so learn to teach and practice a curriculum for the clinician educator. And we also have this 11 habits of highly effective preceptors. Don't forget to access new courses every month and hours of on-demand courses with our pharmacist subscription. Find out more at cimpact.com slash pharmacist. And we hope to see you in the pharmacy network.